0: Uh, we just arrived back last night from an incredible week up into the, uh, in the mountains of Georgia uh, in Blue Ridge where we got to go away for a little while together as a family on a family vacation. Now, granted, having eight kids from 18 to 9, putting the word family and vacation in the same sentence is really inappropriate uh, because it doesn't really play out that way. But I got to tell you, this particular time away of just togetherness was incredible As we headed up to Blue Ridge uh, last weekend, we came in kind of in the evening time. It was pretty dark, and we're coming up the mountain, and there's all these like white things on my window, and I thought to myself, how odd is it that in Georgia, where it's colder, there are all these bugs, and they haven't even come out in Florida yet, to which I realized they were not bugs. It was snow, like snow flurry snow. Uh, Google it. It's these white little things that come down. (laughs) from the clouds when it gets cold enough. I know some of you do not know what that is, but that's okay. So we're driving in literally to a snow flurry as we're coming up the mountain. Now... Uh, We are Floridians, so immediately the conclusion right there was as soon as the sun goes down, we are in that cabin and we are not leaving. If we leave the cabin any night, we may not be able to return uh, because it's that cold, so we're going to stay in the cabin. So I thought to myself, this is going to be interesting to see what it's like to have 10 human beings uh, cooped up inside of a cabin every night. Uh, But I'll tell you, it turns out that those nights were some of the best times we had as a family uh, on this particular family getaway. Because what we decided to do was, uh, since the weather was cooler in the evenings, we'd uh, put the fire on and we'd sit around the fire and we would read a story together. And some of the nights, we picked some movies and we would watch a movie together as a family. So we had the kids kind of look through the movie selections that were there and, and they gravitated, interestingly enough, toward movies that had that little sentence based on a true story or based on true events. And so they selected a movie or two that were based on some true events. And the story that we were reading around the fire each night was also a story of true events. Now, When you're watching a movie or you're reading a story that is based on true events, there's something extraordinary about that. Because when we create a movie or write a story based on our imagination, we can make up whatever we want. But when it's real world stuff... You don't write the story, you don't make the movie, unless the is pretty extraordinary. Because I don't want to watch a story about ordinary stuff, I want to watch a story about extraordinary stuff. And so generally, because a movie was made out of it, or because a book was written, as you read the book or you watch the movie, the events are so awesome that they become inspiring to you, and as an audience member of the book or movie, you are moved, you are changed, you are transformed because you got to catch a glimpse of the story. You got to look in, see what was going on, and based on those people's experiences, you were changed and that inspired you. So that was incredibly fun. Here, as we gather this weekend, we gather here to celebrate Easter. Easter. Now, for most of you, you know, because you're coming in these doors and you you have a a sense that Easter isn't actually about a bunny and some eggs. It's about some other stuff. And so you're like, okay, I already know it's not that. I already know that Easter is about celebrating a particular extraordinary event that took place in our human history. An actual event that was so extraordinary that it's worth uh, thinking about, looking back on, and celebrating year after. After year. And what is this event we celebrate? We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Easter is about celebrating. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now an event that crazy cool, you would say, you might even think... The event itself is worth celebrating. When somebody dies and then comes back from the dead, we go, that's amazing, and we could celebrate the fact that somebody died and came back from the dead. But the truth is, it is not the actual resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate. It's not like we're saying, we're celebrating the fact that somebody resurrected. What we're really celebrating is the implications of that resurrection. What that resurrection impacted, affected, what it continues to affect, that's what we celebrate. And to understand the full magnitude of what we are actually celebrating on Easter, we really need to take the event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and place it back into the story where it belongs, into its context, so that we can begin to see that what we're celebrating is not just a single event, but an entire beautiful, extraordinary Ordinary redemptive story. And it is in the story that the power of the resurrection is truly experienced, and then we begin to understand why we are here celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want us to gather up around the fireplace now, I want you to imagine it's 20 degrees outside. I know that's out of the box. Maybe snowing a bit, okay? And we're sitting here in the room, just a few of us, and we're gathered around a fireplace. And we are going to engage in a journey through the story of God so that we can understand why the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has such tremendous uh, implications and why we celebrate them at all. So God bothered the author of this story to carefully record many of the details of the story for us from the very beginning until now so that we would have a story to read, like any great story that actually happened and somebody bothered to go do the research and write the story down. God did that for us. So where does our story begin? Well, it actually begins in the very beginning In the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis in the Bible, Genesis literally means beginnings and so it is the book of beginnings. And in the book of beginnings, in the very beginning of the Bible, God reveals to us how we came to be. God actually created our human story in its beginnings by creating two people, Adam and Eve. He created them into the story that He intended for all of us to experience. He created them to experience the full implications of God's character and nature. And God's character and nature is so good, so amazing, so extraordinary, that if you experience God fully in every category, what you experience is paradise. Paradise! Paradise in every way. And so Adam and Eve were created into an environment that we call paradise. The Garden of Eden was a paradise. The experience in the garden was a paradise experience. And the relationship that they had with God was a relationship you would expect if you said, I am in paradise. And that's how we were created to be in paradise and to experience all that that word implies. And we did. We had perfect relationship with God. We experienced His fullness. We were so full of the wonder of God. We didn't know what to do with ourselves, and so God actually told us that He not only made us to be filled up by His life and freedom, but also in that fullness, to be able to pour that life and freedom out onto each other. is not that incredible? He comes and fills you up, and you're like, ah, and then you throw up on someone, but good stuff, not bad stuff, right? He's like, here's more life, here's more freedom, here's what's amazing, and that's how it's supposed to be, a, a symphony of us just enjoying everything good. Into that story, the enemy of God came. He came to talk with us, the human beings, and he said to us, listen, I hear you, but this is an amazing place, God's an amazing being, but you know he's trying to trick you, See, he's actually, he's actually trying to enslave you. He's, he's not doing all this for your freedom, for your life. He's enslaving you. He told you not to eat of the tree, right? Yes. And he said you die, right? Yes. Oh, he's lying. See, he doesn't want you to eat from the tree because if you eat from the tree, then you will know what he knows. Then you will be like him and he will lose you. And so he wants you not to eat because he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep you enslaved. If you eat of the tree, you will know what he knows. You will be able to pursue your own destiny and your own divinity. And what better life than that? Now the truth is, Adam and Eve, unlike us, were not corrupted by sin. They were not distant from God. They did not have boundaries between them and God. They did not live on the planet as we know it today, where there's enough to observe to say, I don't know, is God good? Is he bad? I'm not sure. They lived in paradise with God. They had every reason to look at the enemy of God and say, are you... Are you out of your mind? Have you not been with him? Have you not seen this place? But they didn't. They said, oh yeah, that sounds good. And they ate of the fruit. And when they ate of the fruit, they did not discover divinity. They did not discover their destinies written in freedom. They discovered exactly what God said, right? What came into them was like a virus of most extraordinary, corruptive, and corrosive nature. We know it as sin. Sin is the disobedience of what is right, what is godly. It is unrighteousness. And when unrighteousness came into our story, it brought with it the sting that comes with sin, which is death. And our human story died that day. We had to leave the garden because Paradise is not a place where the corrupt exists, and we were distant, distanced from God. But God did not abandon us. He began to promise in whispers things that would one day come. Well, Adam and Eve uh, had two kids, uh, Cain and Abel to start with, and it went badly right there. We saw the beginning of sin. One of the bro- boys killed the other boy, murdered them. And you think that's bad, it got so bad that in the book of beginnings, in Genesis, just a little way further, there's now a bunch of people on the planet, and it literally says this, every thought and intention of man was evil. Can you imagine that? An entire people group of human beings. And you can actually say there is not a single thought or a single intention of this entire group of people that is anything but evil at this point. That is how dangerous and devastating and corruptive and corrosive the the virus of sin was in our humanity. You know what God did? As we were self-destructing, he preserved a man named Noah from the unrighteousness that was going on around him. And he preserved him through faithfulness. And he took Noah and his family and he put him outside the bubble and he put him inside a safe little space and he said, I am going to take care of this sin problem with mankind before they kill each other to death anyways, but I'm gonna start from scratch with you. And he put Noah in a boat and Noah was a brand new start. You know what Noah was? He was a brand new Adam. He was a brand new start in a a brand new paradise with a little dove and, and the little thing. You remember the little thing and the dove? It's beautiful, isn't it? You've seen the cartoons. Noah was supposed to be a new Adam, a new start. And once Noah hit the ground with his family, how'd it go? There are chapters in the Bible you can't have your kids read because Noah did stuff you don't want your kids to know about. It was so bad, you're like, I don't want to speak of it. It went really badly with Noah. It went really badly with his boys and his, and his kids. In fact, it went so badly that in just a few generations of having some people populating uh, the, the area again, you know what the people did in their unity? They gathered up and said, God, who is God? We'll build a stairway to heaven and go take that place down, man. They built a tower called the Tower of Babel. They're like, we're going to build this tower. We're going to build it to heaven. We're going to get in there. We're going to take him. We're going to show him who's God. Well, it didn't work out for them. God came down. And he divided us into people groups and language groups. Because in our unity, the corruptive, corrosive nature of sin was creating havoc and devastation like it was before the flood. And then as he divided us into people groups and languages, what did we do? In our corruption, we started warring against each other. Gathered with the people groups we like and warred against the others. And it was war and death and horror. And in the midst of all of that, as that was happening, God went to a place called Ur. I don't know where Ur is. It's a random place. But apparently a guy was born in Ur and his name was Abraham. And God went to Abraham. And he said to Abraham, hey, I want you to leave Ur and I want you to follow me. Abraham said, where are we going to go? God said, don't worry about that. Just come. And Abraham came. And God took Abraham one evening and he said, listen, I want you to bring to me some animals. He picked a couple different animals. I want you to cut them in half and lay them out on the road. Now you go, that's super gross. It's not actually that gross. I mean, it is, but it's not meant to be gross because it was part of how they made promises to each other during that time. We call it cutting covenant. And when you cut covenant... You took an animal, you cut it in half after slaughtering it, you put the two halves aside, and then the two of you would walk through the animal, and in the middle of the animal, you would make your promises to each other. And then when you came out on the other side, if either of you broke the promises, the other person could do to you what they did to the animal. Yeah, we should have our kids do that. (laughs) You promised you're going to clean your room? Let's walk the animal, baby. That's not going to go so well. So covenants were a big deal back then. So God lays out the animals and he's going to walk through the middle with Abraham to make some promises to him. But you know what God does? After Adam's insanity and then after Noah's insanity, God takes Abraham and he puts him to sleep. And while he's sleeping, God cuts covenant with himself, but he makes the promises to Abraham. So he says, I'm going to make promises to you, Abraham, but the person I'm going to trust with those promises is me. He essentially creates an unconditional set of promises to Abraham. No matter how bad you are, I will still fulfill my promises to you. That is amazing. So Abraham wakes up and God goes, I made some cool promises to you. He promised Abraham a son. And then from that son, he promised from that son, there would be a nation that would come from that son, and that that nation would be given a, a promised land, a paradise again, and that out of that nation in paradise would come a redeemer that would set all things right. And Abraham was like, whoa, that's awesome. And so the story began to unfold. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons. One of the sons, the other boys hated, so they sold him into slavery. How's that sin thing working out? Not so good. He ends up in Egypt, and then during a famine, the other 11 boys and their dad, Jacob, who was also known as Israel, was brought to Egypt. So Israel and his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, ended up in Egypt, and Egypt was an incredible environment for them. One of the greatest leaders in Egypt was Joseph, their brother. And so he preserved them, and God used Joseph to allow them to flourish there. They had food to eat during famine, and they began to flourish as a family. And then that family grew into a little people group. And then over a few hundred years, it grew into a very large people group. But by that time, Joseph had died. And the new leaders of Egypt, they looked at this people group, and they're like, oh, this is a great workforce. And so they gathered the people. They enslaved them and they made them work. So, a few hundred years after the promises to Abraham, it turns out a nation was born out of Abraham, but they were not in a promised land, not in a paradise, not with milk and honey, and there was no redeemer coming from them. And so we look at the story, and we're like, wow, God, why would you birth a nation only to have them enslaved by another nation, and then leave them abandoned while they work their tail off when they don't want to? God goes, hold on, I'm not done. God rises up, a redeemer called Moses. He sends Moses to Pharaoh and he says, tell Pharaoh, these are my people. He needs to let them go. Pharaoh doesn't do it. Several events take place that entice Pharaoh to try to release the people, but he doesn't. All part of God's extraordinary story until one day God says to the people, I am going to send the angel of death to Egypt. And the angel of death will carry the sting of death with him. And if he comes into your home, He will bring death to your home. So there's only one way out. You go find a lamb, a lamb without flaw. You slaughter that lamb and you take its blood and you paint it on the doorpost of your home. And if you do, when the angel of death comes carrying the sting of death with him, he will pass over your house and you will not die. And in that event, not only will you not die and be saved from the sting of death, but you will also be set free from the slavery under which you currently live. So the people went and found lambs, and they, they, they painted the blood of the lamb around the doorpost. And the angel of death came, and he passed over those homes. And one of the greatest celebrations in the Jewish calendar, which is still part of our celebrations today, is a celebration called Passover. Where we remember the great rescue of God through the blood of his lambs, so that death would pass over and freedom would come. The people are set free out of that event, and they go into the land, and you know what God does? He gives Moses and the people the law. Now, what is the law? You see, when he came to Adam and Eve, he said to Adam and Eve, if you live in obedience to me, if you don't disobey me, then that will lead to life and freedom. You will have life and freedom in this place. Just don't do that. Adam and Eve stepped into unrighteousness, and with unrighteousness came death, destruction, and curses. Then Noah did the same exact thing. Now God comes to the people and says, look, here's the law. This actually tells you in black and white ink on a page how to do this. It's not difficult. Just follow these instructions and righteousness will be yours, and out of righteousness you will have life and freedom. How'd it go? Didn't go so well. See, the people were so bent on their own self gratification and their own stuff. In fact, while God was giving Moses the law, they were building a golden calf and worshiping it like it was something special. God goes, This is not good. So God begins to do something. He sends judges to the people. Judges aren't like we think of judges, someone to judge you. They were people sent uh, to call the people out of their foolishness, out of unrighteousness, into righteousness. So he sends judges to say, come on, stop being foolish. You have the law, follow it, and it will be life and freedom. How complicated is this? It's not that complicated. And the people would hear the judges briefly follow and then dissipate. In their sin and unrighteousness and curses, consequences came. Nations overthrew them. And God would send these judges, not, as, not just as judges, but as redeemers as well rescuers who would go out and war against these nations and rescue the people of God. So the consequences of the sin that they were affecting because they were not listening to the judges, the, the judges would rescue them from. And you know what happened? The people would get rescued. They go, I'm so sorry, God. We were so dumb. And then 10 minutes later, they'd be doing something stupid again. So God sent them priests, created a, a priestly order. and He said, these priests will be with you every day and they will help you follow me. They they will lead you to me each day. They will remind you of the law. They will remind you of who I am so that you can follow the law. He sent them prophets, prophets who would direct their path, who would speak truth to them in powerful ways, even truth about the future. And he sent them prophets. He even gave them kings. He said he would be their king and they didn't want him because the other nations had real kings like people. And so he's like, okay, I'll give you people then. People didn't work out so well. You know what the people did? They ignored the priests. They hated the prophets. And the kings were so corrupt half the time. And the good kings were bad half the time. And the bad kings were bad all the time. And so it was a lot of bad. The kings who were given to them to protect them and to rule over them just used them. The prophets were ignored and hurt and killed and beaten. And the priests were ignored as well. And the people didn't listen. And they just kept on sinning. You know what happened? Eventually, God stopped sending them prophets. Didn't give them any more kings. Didn't send any more redeemers. Didn't give them any more judges. And the priests, He just left to themselves and they became corrupt and started institutionalizing everything. 400 years of total silence. After Solomon, who was king, Israel split into two sections and then just a few years after that, both those sections fell to other nations and they were enslaved the entire time and there were no more kings. No kings, no prophets, no warriors, no judges, no redeemers. And for 400 years we sit. And you know what we finally realize? God has finally given up on the human race. He tried everything, right? Tried a new Adam. I mean, he tried Adam first. That didn't go well. Tried a new Adam and Noah. That didn't go well. Tried Abraham unconditionally. That didn't go well. Tried the law. That didn't go well. Then he tried prophets and priests and kings and judges and, 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 and redeemers. And that didn't go well. And so he just stopped. And we go, wow, God finally gave up. <laughs> Why would God do that? All that stuff. he knows, right? I mean, God is God, right? He knew how Adam and Eve would play out. He certainly, after Adam and Eve, with the corruption of sin, knew how Noah would go. He knew. Noah had the disease of sin in him. He knew. He knew how Abraham would go. He knew the law would just become a condemning reality to the people because they couldn't live up to it. He knew the prophets would be hated. He knew the priests would be ignored. He knew the kings would be corrupt. Why? Why'd he do it? Was he trying out different options? See what would work with us? No. No, 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 no. See, God wasn't trying options. He wasn't going, let's let's try Noah. Oh, no, that didn't work. Let's try Abraham. Ah, that was bad. Let's try the law. Oh, big mistake. He didn't do that. God was telling us a story, a story we needed to hear. Because if we didn't hear that story, we would never understand, never believe that we couldn't do it ourselves. See, God threw everything at us that we could have ever imagined would empower us to do it ourselves, to be righteous ourselves, to go back to being Adam and Eve before the fall ourselves, to become somebody that could at least follow God ourselves. God gave us every reason to be able to get it right, and we got it wrong every time. And for 400 years, God sat in silence, and then, into the quiet... Into the silence was born a child. This child was born under some extraordinary circumstances. A child was born that would become a great redeemer. He he was born of a virgin girl. Interesting because it has great implications. You see, when a man and woman conceive a child, the disease of sin is passed through to the children but Jesus was not conceived by a man and a woman he was conceived by the Holy Spirit inside the womb of a virgin so he was conceived and born without sin something none of us had ever known he was born with some fanfare a few angels on a hill with some shepherds but other than that essentially into the silence into obscurity a few people knew that was it And for the next 30 years, Jesus is on this planet, and other than an incident when he was 12, and a few things when he was a baby, we know nothing. Jesus was quiet and did nothing. And then, at about age 30, Jesus is walking out one day toward a river, and there's a man in the river. His name is John the Baptist. See, God had prophesied through the prophets that were ignored and hated, that this redeemer, when he would come, he would be born in a certain way, in a certain town, by certain miraculous realities, and those all happened, but we didn't really know about them back then. And then he said, there will be one that will prepare the way for you, and he will declare when you come. John the Baptist is standing in a river. He's baptizing people into a baptism of repentance, like a prophet would call people back to God. Come back to God, don't be foolish, come back to God. And Jesus walks up and John the Baptist stops and he looks up and he sees Jesus and it tells us in the gospel, he shouts, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's what he declares about Jesus. Jesus comes and is baptized and after his baptism, he goes out and the most extraordinary things begin to happen. He teaches with unbelievable authority like a, like a prophet would, like Like the best prophet that had ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus taught like that prophet. People even called him. Are you Jeremiah? Are you you Isaiah? Who are you? Because he spoke with such beautiful authority like prophets did. He led with such grace like a king would. And he loved with such gentleness like a priest would. And he became for the people a great priest to follow, a great king to watch, a great prophet to listen to. And the people followed him. Oh, did they follow him. Three years he did extraordinary things, miraculous things. And then on the 10th of Nisan, uh, Nisan is a month in the Jewish calendar, like February or March is in our calendar. It's just a month, the name of a month. And the 10th of Nisan, Jesus got on a donkey and entered a city called Jerusalem. Now this was very significant, here's why. The 10th of Nisan is the beginning of the Passover festival or feast that the people celebrate. Remember the Passover was the festival feast that came about because of the angel of death passing over the door with the lamb that's painted on the doorpost. And on the 10th of Nisan, what they do is they go and select the lamb that needs to be slaughtered. So a bunch of lambs are brought to the high priest and he looks at them and they examine them. They're all pretty flawless, but they find the one that they can go, this one is without blemish because one of the lambs will be slaughtered on behalf of the nation of Israel to atone for their sin for the next year until the next time they can slaughter a lamb on the Passover again. And so they, they take a lamb and they select the lamb and they pull the lamb out and they set the lamb aside and they're like, that's the lamb that will atone for our sins. And Jesus enters Jerusalem on the very day that they are selecting the lamb for slaughter that will atone for the sins of Israel. He rides into Jerusalem. You know what happens between Nisan 10th and Nisan 14th where they actually begin to slaughter the lambs? They take that lamb and they scrutinize it. For, for all those days they look at it, they examine it, they test it because they must determine that there is no blemish in it. Otherwise it will not be suitable to atone for all the sins of the nation of Israel. You know what happened to Jesus between Nisan 10th and Nisan 14th? He was tested by the Pharisees. He was tested by the Sadducees. He was tested by the people. He was tested by Herod. He was tested by the Roman government, and he was eventually tested by Pontius Pilate, the leader of everything Rome in that region. And after all that testing, and all that pushing, and all those trials, and all that stuff, you know what Pontius Pilate declared about Jesus? I find no fault in this man. I mean, we have checked Everything. We have watched everything. We have t- talked to witnesses. We have done everything we can do as the Roman government, and I find nothing in him. The Roman government really just wanted to find fault and crucify you. That was it. And the easiest thing for them to do is, oh, oh, there's something. And he couldn't find one thing, not one thing in Jesus that was wrong that he had ever done. So Pontius Pilate, representing the Roman government, one of the most corrupt forces this planet has ever seen declares the Lamb of God to be unblemished and completely righteous. Takes him to the people and says, listen, there's nothing wrong with him. What do you want to do? You know what the people say? Slaughter him. Slaughter him. And so they take Jesus and they crucify him despite the fact that he was an unblemished lamb. Are you catching the story yet? Yeah, See, God's been telling his story the whole time. He hasn't been testing things. He's been preparing us. And so Jesus went to the cross. And at 9 a.m. on Nisan 14th, they begin to slaughter lambs in the temple for the households that want to atone for their sins. And then at 3 p.m. on Nisan 14th, they slaughter the last lamb that was selected for the atonement of Israel. At 9 a.m., Jesus is crucified. And at 3 p.m., just before 3, Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished. I have atoned for the sins of the human race. It is finished. And he commits his soul to God and dies for us. See, in that moment, Jesus became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if the story ended there, it would be enough, wouldn't it? Wouldn't we leave here going, wow, I don't know what to say. But that's not the end of the story. You see, what really happens next is this, that as Jesus dies, it turns out death had no claim on Christ. It turns out Jesus owed death no wages. You see, Romans says the wages of sin is death. We owe death. But Jesus didn't owe death because he had no sin. So death could not hold him. Death had no claim over him. And he happened to be the creator and sustainer of the entire universe and everything else. So that was bad news for death because Jesus defied death and he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, He became far more than just the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, in rising from the dead, there he became the one who fulfills the law that God had given to us that we couldn't fulfill. He did it for us. He becomes the new Adam, the real Adam, the one that should have been, the one that Noah should have been, and Abraham should have been, and everybody else should have been, but couldn't. He became the prophet the priest, and the king that we should have had from the beginning. And he became our righteousness. Now that's important. Here's why. Because in his resurrection, when he conquered death and became the Lamb of God, taking away our sin and became our righteousness, he says now to us, I will be righteousness for you because you cannot be righteousness yourself. And you need righteousness to have freedom and to have life and to be free of slavery and death. In his crucifixion, he saves us from death. And in his resurrection, he sets us free for life. And this is the beauty of what he does. Paul writes about this. Listen to this. If you've been at Mosaic a long time, you're gonna go, really? I've heard this 12,000 times. Well, get used to it. You'll hear it the rest of your stinking life. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here it is. Listen. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was the entire story of the Old Testament. Did you see it there? I threw everything at you, and you could never be righteous. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, that is our future, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, the implications of the resurrection is that we are invited to be part of this story. It's one thing to be a spectator, isn't it? It's one thing to be an audience, isn't it? What a great story. What a moving story. What an amazing story. Now I will leave inspired, but this story doesn't end by simply laying a story before you that changes you because you got to see it. This story says, listen, the story wasn't for you to observe It was for you to be a recipient of and to be a participant in. We are invited by the gospel, the redemptive story of God, to be a recipient of God's grace and a participant in God's grace. The story is for us. And how do we do this? How do we get to be a recipient of this story, this righteousness, so that we would be free? Well... It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. In the book of Romans, Paul writes and tells us, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, listen. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses And is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on his name. For everyone who calls on his name, on the name of the Lord, will be saved. So, you want to be a recipient of the story? then you act out in active belief, which we call faith. A gift from God, by the way. Active faith where you say, yes, I I do believe. I heard the story. I, I do believe. And you say to God, I do believe. And I want you to be my righteousness. And in that moment, the Bible says, the Spirit of God comes and resides with us, in us, so that the presence of Christ is with us always and empowers us for salvation in the future and for the life we get to live now as followers of Jesus. That's how we are recipients of God's grace. And how are we participants in God's grace? Well, once we know Jesus and once we have received this grace, then the good news that was ours, the gospel, now becomes something through the power of the Spirit that we get to carry out into our relationships and with our resources and in our circumstances to live a life of devotion to this God who saved us and a life of mission for His redemptive kingdom. We get to be good news to those around us. And in so doing, the story of God becomes our story. And we become part of the story of God. Now that is worth celebrating. And when we say we're celebrating Easter, we are celebrating that story. And every bit of it. And every part of it. And so it's not just a resurrection we celebrate. It is the implications of the resurrection. That this man Jesus. Demonstrated himself to be our creator and sustainer. Our high priest. Our prophet. Our king. Our judge. Our redeemer. Our savior. Our Lord. And the one. Who was the lamb of God. Who saved us from the death that waited because of our sin. He became our righteousness so that we would be free. Happy Easter. Let's pray. God, wow, thank you. Thank you that the resurrection isn't just a neat event that took place that we go, hoorah, but that the resurrection of you from the dead was a declaration of victory over sin and death. No wonder Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your victory? For though death and sin had hold on us through you, Jesus Christ, We now have victory over sin and death. We have been given eternal life. Our souls are rescued, our futures redeemed, our purpose restored so that we could live our lives participating in your grace by being good news to those around us. God, stir in us what is necessary that we might live in your story.